This is Fab Radio International. Hello, listener. It's Sunday. That must mean it's time for Fab Radio International's The Bookworm. I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with... Nympha Hayes. So, hello, everybody. Okay, let's let's get that the usual thing when we talk about social media. Go to Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr and we are Radio Bookworm. You can find us on Mixcloud, you can find us on iTunes. If you've got to us via the starburstmagazine.com website, please go via iTunes and please, please, please rate us. Even if you just put a comment saying, this show is rubbish or this show is awesome. We don't care, just comment and then <laughs> subscribe uh, because, you know, you might as well. Also, the radio station, FabRadioNational.com, has its own stuff, has its own website. You can go on there. And let's talk about the show, because that's why you're here, and that's why I'm here. So, today's show is a pre-record. Yes, that means that we're somewhere else. Dun, 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 dun. So, obviously, the news piece is going to be about conventions and the Man Booker Prize, because that never changes, and we predict there will be news about the Man Booker Prize because of the media machine and how that works. <laughs> Um, I'm going to be talking about Grudge Bearer. I'm also going to be weeping, but I'm going to be talking about Grudge Bearer. And then, for what are you talking about? Uh, I'm going to be talking about Marked, which is the first book in the House of Night series. Sounds absolutely groovy. We are also talking to uh, the lovely Australian chap Ben Peake, who wrote a book for um, a book called Godless, which is about a world without gods, sort of. So yeah. uh, all of that is coming up next. the world 24 hours a day this is Fabian International okay so a quick bit of news about the show itself uh, as you might have gathered, we are now um, part of Starburst Magazine's family podcast, which is Groovy. It's probably where you found us. So when we say Sunday at the start of the show, you're probably listening to us on a Tuesday or Wednesday. <laughs> um, so, yes. Boot news-wise, uh, this is a pre-record, so we're going to use our psychic powers and predict that the Man Booker Prize will have done something controversial because they've just announced their long list of nominees and it's about this time in their news cycle that something controversial happens. It's not that I'm saying that the Man Booker Prize is predictable. No, no, I am. I'm saying the Man Booker Prize is really <laughs> predictable. Um, we are mostly a genre book show. Um, so really, the Man Booker Prize is kind of irrelevant to us, but then it's kind of irrelevant to everyone. Mm. But, you know, controversy, it's almost like they deliberately generate controversy to generate news column inches. It, it, the thing with the Man Booker Prize is... Surely not, Producer Al. <laughs> I'm sorry, was that slightly too cynical? It, no, it's, it's, <laughs> the thing is, it is so, uh, so, so entrenched now because there's a lot of money in the Man Booker Prize. And it's not just the prize money, it's the whole thing. The whole thing has, has an absolute ton of money in it. Um, and it's kind of, it, it, it's pretty much run by, uh, you know, a well, the, uh, I'll give you a quote here, actually. There is a well-established L- London literary community Certain people don't get shortlisted because the, you know because they have attacked the community in the past. 
there's a whole thing where you know various people have said horrible things about the man Booker Prize, and I'm inclined to believe them because it just seems, you know, it's. I I, I, t- I tell you what stopped me paying attention to the man Booker Prize, and this was a good number of years ago. Seamus Heaney's, Heaney's Beowulf won the Booker, and you sit there and you go, "Well, that's original fiction." <laughs> Beowulf. It's, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. It's beautiful. If you haven't read it and you're inclined to read translations of poetry uh, of ancient sagas and you like reading ancient sagas, read read Seamus and Heaney. Heaney God bless his soul. Um, read it. It's wonderful. It's really, really good. But it's completely irrelevant to most of the readership. And I don't think it sounds almost like you're saying that this is a price for a sort of an elite. It, it, it's very elite. <laughs> it's very, very elite. And it's not even it's not even an aspirational elite. It's just, you know, you will never, I, I will never come close to being involved. Most of the public will never be co- come close to being involved. It's a handy book list that's launched once a year for books that you might want to read. But the, the thing is, as as we have discussed in relation to other subjects, most awards at the top level of any industry are a little cliquey, in-house, backslabbing, backrubbing, oh, congratulations to you, you made this good, good product this year type affair. Uh, and the access to the people who are maybe doing interesting and creative work at, at the sort of lower level... Is, is almost non-existent. We could talk about this in film, we could talk about it in TV, we could talk about it in theatre, um, theatre generally, but it, uh, also in specific cities. We could talk about this and, until the cows come home, and it's, I, I don't know what the solution is. Well, uh, the danger of sliding into topicality, this is the news section, there is, there is an entire point that the Hugos, which are older than the Booger, Man Booker Prize, less well covered than the Man Booker Prize because they exclusively deal with genre, but then so do we. Um, you know, it's the 73rd World Con is happening. Um, 73rd? 74th? Is it 74th? 72nd. Have I lost count of World Cons? It's so, I'm so old because, you know, I was there. At, no, no, obviously I wasn't there at the start. Um, it, it's, you know, a lifetime's worth of World Cons. Yeah, 72nd. 72nd. What I was trying to vaguely. It's the 73rd one, Sosk one, which is next year. That would be the one. Ah, so you see, because they all blend, they all blur into each other because the torch is handed over from one to the other. So I'm thinking about next year's now because the people who are going to next year's can be anyway. next year's. Anyway, my point, the point I'm making is with the Hugos, you can engage... If you're going to a Worldcon, you can engage with the, the the process. You can discuss with the judges. You are a judge. You can nominate. Um, same with the Kitchies. The Kitchies, uh, Jared Shewan, who we've interviewed on the show. He's a lovely chap. We like Jared. He said that he he, he doesn't do best. It's, you don't get a you don't get a Kitchies you don't get a technical award for being best. You get a technical award for being for being interesting, for being innovative. Please tell me it's actually shaped like a tentacle. They are. <gasps> oh, oh, now I want one. Oh, we, we don't qualify in <laughs> any way, shape or form. We, we haven't written a book. But we, are, but, but we could write books. Oh, yeah. Nymph written a book. That's true. I can write more books and yeah. get one. Uh, well, actually, talking about the news, because we are the news, hey. kitchens are open for nominations. If you are a Nominate me! If you are a publisher... Um, I believe you can get in touch, or if you're the author, you can get in touch, and I believe it has to be produced this year. So the kitchies, the kitchies, the kitchies uh, uh, require your, your your love and attention. Um, the Man Booker Prize, eh. 
Not so much. Not so much. It's going to get loads of publicity. People, people will go to Waterstones and buy some books on the list. That's lovely. But um, I think I think we might. Um, apparently, talk. according to the blurb, uh, the Golden Tentacle is awarded annually to the debut novel that best fits the criteria of progressive, intelligent, and entertaining. The book must be the author's first published work of novel-length fiction in any genre. Oh, you get you get five hundred pounds as well as the the handcrafted trophy. That's quite like the sound of that. Sponsored by Kraken Vum. Ooh, oh, mm. hello. <laughs> <laughs> this is getting better. Oh, the, the, do you get a bottle of rum as well? Do you think? Um, I think rum is involved. I, I've been, I've been, <laughs> I've been trying to get an invitation to the. It's in London. I've been trying to get an invitation to the Kitchy Awards because it's a closed award ceremony. Hello, Kitchies out there. Here's the bookworm. <laughs> Send us an invitation, Nympha and or our producer, I <laughs> should say, and Ed are begging. Thank you. Hi, Jared. I'm really sorry. <laughs> oh, there is no submission fee. Mm. No, no, they're really, really, really progressive. <laughs> they're really clever. It sounds <laughs> almost <laughs> like they're all about the books. <laughs> this is, in, this in, can be. In italics. However, we do request that publishers keep our criteria in mind and not send us their entire catalogue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, th- th- there's been a thing recently where kind of those, those mid-level bespoke publishers... Uh, have opened opened up their submissions windows, and then suddenly they've gone. There's this flood of flood of fiction of it, uh, headed towards them, and they've gone. These people, these people don't know the books that books that we produce. So quite a few publishers now say things like, "If you small kind of mid level, small kind of bespoke publishers do this thing now, where they say, hi, uh, we want to produce your book, we really do. We want to read your manuscript, we really do. But in your introduction letter, can you just tell us about one of the books that we've published recently?'" Just, just a short review, so you know the sort of stuff. And it's that is clever. I mean, uh, I ha- think like in everything else. I mean, if you're applying for a job, you're going to be researching the the company that you're applying for, or the shop, or whatever. If you're submitting a book, which you know to me is like, here I'm handing you my beautiful baby that I've been you know growing lovingly for the last however many months or years. I want to know who you are. I'm not just going to give you my baby. <laughs> You see, you say that, but you know, writers do that all the time. You, <laughs> you knock on the door and leave the child out in the cold. No, don't uh, do that. Writers like that just don't. Just, you know, research your, your publishing house. Uh, know more about the people that are involved in the process within that publishing house. Uh, and know most of all what they do and how they do it. Because they're the people that are going to take care of that, you know, fragile little thing that is your book. You know, we've rapidly strayed off the news topic. Of course. I can only apologise. Um, but we have actually accidentally covered the news and all the relevant topics. And hopefully <laughs> something has happened between us recording the show and you listening to the show. It means you go, oh, that's actually very topical. Well done. Or probably not. Probably not. Should we do uh, a book review next? Oh, let's. So you're listening to The Bookworm, either on the Stop This Podcast family or on fabradiointernational.com, one or the other, possibly both at the same time if you're quite strange <laughs> and have a time machine. Um, so I'm going to review Grudgebearer by J.F. Lewis, don't call him Jeff, uh, and don't call him C.S. Lewis, which I've been doing randomly in my <laughs> head. Oh my God, he's not C.S. Lewis. Um, uh, 
What's okay. it about, Ed? You look a bit forlorn. I, I, I really, I made the, that classic mistake of judging a book by its cover. Because on the cover, it's got this beautiful, beautiful piece of artwork that makes it look like it's part of the Pathfinder series. Because look at that dragon. It's um, a dragon, that's all I need to know. It's got a dragon on the cover. It can't be bad, he said optimistically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to read the bit out of the blurb out the back because it actually it tells you an awful lot. Um, it tells you more than you would expect. Uh, you might see what I mean. Kulsu is the firstborn of practically a mortal urn, a race of creatures called the Eldrani, uh, as warrior slaves to defend them against the magic resistant reptilian Zawa. Unable to break an oath without breaking the connection with each other, the urn served the Eldrani faithfully for thousands of years until the Sundering. Now the urn, the Vale, and the Eldrani meet every hundred years for a grand conjunction to, to renew the tenuous peace. No, there's more. While or while the torches of slavery remain fresh in Colster's mind, most of the rest of the world has moved on. Almost 600 years after the sundering, an Aldrani prince carelessly breaks a truce by touching a museum exhibit. Oh, God. Um, okay, so Jeff Lewis previously wrote the Void City series, um, which uh, many of our listeners adored. I quite liked it as well. And the problem with Gridgebearer is it is old-school, hardcore fantasy and sometimes that's great. Sometimes that's exactly what you want. Unfortunately, I started reading this book and I thought I'd missed a book. I thought this was the number two of a series. I, I did my research and realised, no, it's the first one of a series. So why was I so lost? I was so lost because he packs it to the gills with details, with world building. And often, often that's lovely. Often, you know, that's completely fantastic. Most of the time, um, most of the time, however, ah, most of the time it's just confusing. Most of the time, you know, you, you just get to a point where you, you just don't really care. Um, there's some, there, there is a good story here. There is, there is some interesting commentary on slavery. There's some interesting commentary on moving on. There's some interesting ideas on the use of power. Um, all of this is hidden under words like Androni, Zingma, Vander, Colster, Blood Means, Blood Oath. So it's, it's a bit world heavy. It's very world heavy. Um, I've just picked a page at random here, and the first three words are Rien, Mijin, Jus, Kazan. The heck? Um, it, it, it's a very sort of, it sounds like a very, as you say, heavy, high fantasy where there's a, a world that it's completely separate from ours. And, and uh, But, I mean, looking at it, how many pages is it? Oh, it's thick and dense. It's, it's quite dense. It's quite, yeah, because it looks like it's quite a small writing as well. And you've got 400 pages um, on a first book, which by no means, you know, defines anything. Um, but it does seem like if, if you're in the mood for a good old fantasy, old style, lots of exotic names and places that that don't exist and, and you just want to sort of like delve into that, maybe that's the book for you. It, if you like really dense fantasy, I think you'd completely adore it. Um, the problem is, is I mean, it's, it's got one of two things as well. Uh, the, the fact that, you know, one of the races have been pretty much created for the, the, the joy 
of another ancient race. And the one hand, you sit there and you go, I'm deeply suspicious of that as an idea and a concept. And then he does it, he, then he handles it really well. And he, you know, again, the, the idea is the themes of slavery and control. Mm. Um, it's just. There is a thing I hate when people are reviewing books where they go, oh, it's the the bloody bloody thing with the thing, the thing, the thing, the thing, the thing. And they, they, they're very dismissive of world building. Um, it's hard not to be dismissive of this world building when this feels like a source book. It feels like it feels like I need a companion. Right. Okay. Um, I, if I had a little bit more time and a little bit more. I tell you what, if I was if I was if I was on holiday. And I had nothing to do. And I only had this book. I would probably completely adore it by the end. Mm. But I don't know if that's because it's really good or because that would be Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> it's, it's one or the other. Well, it sounds like it's it's one of those books where you have to take your time and actually dedicate it, you know, a f- couple of weeks or more just to that one book. Um, There's definitely a style of fantasy. Uh, I think you really, really grudge bearer, be in the mood. Essentially, read the first chapter online, on about you, online or in the shop. You know your local indie bookshop, and obviously you're shopping at your local indie bookshop because you listen to this show. Um, <laughs> you know, won't begrudge you turning the first few pages to see if you can get into it. If it draws you in, and if you're like, I want to know more about the Zara, I want to know more about their hats, then then yes, then it's for you. Otherwise, if you're like. My, my, my eyes are bleeding and I can't think then then stop because it doesn't get any lighter it's dense all the way through um, yeah I was just I was just a little bit disappointed because I was I was hoping it, I was hoping it would be more it's got dragon on the cover it can't, it can't be bad no um, it doesn't sound like it's bad it just sounds that like maybe you weren't in the mood yeah it's it's not it's not for me I think but I think it might be for you if you love that sort of fantasy is there, is there a side conversation to be had at some point about having to be in the mood for certain sorts of book? I, probably not one I, for today. I am very much of the opinion that uh, some books come into your life uh, when you just can't be asked. They, they just do. And especially if you're a big, avid reader, you'll go, oh, my God, that sounds so good. Oh, my God, that sounds so good. And you have 30 books at home and you're not going to want to read all of them at you know, at this point in time. Um, so it's nice to have that choice and it's nice when you have, you know, a few different genres and, and approaches so that you can go, oh, I'm going to oh, I'm gonna read this, read the first chapter and go, oh, that sounds awfully heavy. Change, just go somewhere else and go back to it. I would also say that if you've read the Void City books by Jeff Lewis and you enjoyed them, again, try this one out because it is a change of pace um, and it's not you know it's clearly the same author it just feels different you know he's going through a different thing he's talking in a different way um, so you know authors are entirely allowed to do they're allowed to be diverse absolutely um, so remind us what what was the book it's called Grudge Bearer it's by J.F. Lewis it is available on Penguin Random House Random Whoa. Penguin um, oh you like Random Penguin sorry Random Penguin <laughs> should stop calling you Random Penguin, Random Penguin. Uh, it's, it's it's available on Penguin Random House. Um, oh, bless. I'm thinking of Random Penguins now. I always do. Oh, okay, stop thinking about Random Penguins and think about random books. Um, it's it's 
reasonably priced. I'm looking at this now. <laughs> You're just grasping at straws now. Um, so that's Grudge Bearer, Grudge Bearer by J.F. Lewis. Uh, sounds like a um, nice big fantasy adventure with loads of world building and loads of interesting new races. If that's what you enjoy, then pick it up. It's available in ebook format. It's $12, and that would be about a seven quid ebook format. Um, yeah, probably the uh, probably the book's a couple of quid more because for some reason they charge you for paper um, <laughs> and postage. Uh, coming up next, uh, we talk to another world builder uh, who created a lovely dense world. Uh, we talk to Ben Peake. We'll talk about that after these messages. So I was very lucky enough to talk to Ben Peake about his latest book, The Godless. Uh, he set out to create a book uh, for a fantasy book for atheists and then accidentally filled his world full of gods. There you go. Um, a lovely, lovely chap. Sound quality is okay. Uh, but please bear in mind that he is in Australia and I was in, you know, Bolton. So <laughs> the, the, the glamorous. glamorous, glamorous conversation. Um, but yeah, enjoy a lovely conversation with Ben Peake, the author of The Godless. Embrace the alternative with Fab Radio. Ben Peake, welcome to the Bookworm. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. What can you tell us about your new fantasy book, The Godless? Well, The Godless is my new fantasy book that's coming out uh, in about a month now, a month and a few days, August 13th, I believe. Um, I'll be on a plane going to the UK when that happens, so it'll be very exciting from a distance. Um, and it's my—it's basically a book about um, a world in which all the gods lie kind of dead and dying across the world, and people get sort of contaminated with their power, and there's armies, and there's fantasy things and there's big wars it's kind of cool your main character has a rather rough time of it in this what can you tell us about them yeah the main character well there are actually three main characters so um you know it's kind of like a on an ensemble cast kind of piece um but it begins with a character called ia and um she wakes up basically uh one day sort of being infected by um, the sort of divinity of one of the gods that is nearby, and that sort of just coincides with the start of a sort of like uh, military invasion sort of happening in her home. She lives um, on a mountain in a trade city called Maria, and Maria is built uh, at the top of a huge mountain, which is in fact a huge kind of khan for a giant uh, god that lies dead throughout the mountain range and lies across the ground. And you know, so it's a very interesting concept for a novel. Why did you kill all your gods at the start? Uh, initially, right, initially I, I meant to write like an atheist fantasy novel um, because I thought, you know what would be really cool? Like a fantasy novel without any gods in it and without any kind of religion and completely devoid of that. So I thought, I'll write like this atheist fantasy novel because that seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, and then I made the fantastically non-contradictory element of just having my gods lying on the ground dead because I thought that, that that would make it more atheist, you know? I thought, what's what's more convincing for an atheist than to look at the body of a god and say, well, your god's dead. And then, of course, 
<laughs> I soon discovered that um, saying that really kind of meant that the gods now had like this presence in the books. So I completely didn't write an atheist book at all whatsoever. <laughs> but that was the initial plan. The initial plan was to write like an atheist book. And so to deal with the fact that there were no going to be no gods in there, I killed them all and left their bodies lying around the ground to sort of alter things and give kind of like a, a different kind of like vibe to the world and to alter it differently so that it didn't look like the same kind of like, you know, uh, almost like European kind of like ye old fantasy settings and stuff like that. And in doing that, I completely ruined my original idea, which was fine. I mean, all ideas kind of evolve and change as you go along. What was your inspiration for The Godless? Um, mostly it was all the fantasy books I read as a teenager growing up, to be quite honest. I was... <laughs> I, um, I must have spent most of my teenage years uh, reading no good books for me and like most of them were just fantasy books. So anything, like I was a teenager around the end of the 80s, early 90s. So all those kind of books that are around then, you know, like the Dragonlance, Weiss and Hickman books, the Deathgate Cycle books, uh, the Remini Feist Magician series, uh, the Terry Brooks stuff, uh, the Tolkien, the Lynn Abbey, Thieves World um, things and all that kind of stuff. That Those were basically all really the influence of where I was coming from because I sort of hit this patch in my career where I wasn't sure what I was going to do anymore. I'd sort of had a rough run with like a book, the global financial crisis that came along sort of uh, had an effect on my career, you know, it knocked it back to a sort of reset position. And so I was trying to figure out why I was doing all this. And I started thinking about all the books that I read as a kid and the stuff that I really loved. And I just decided I would wrote a book that sort of channeled all that really early teenage love I had for things. And those were basically all the influences. Um, I don't know if you can really see it in the book. I mean, I have read and experienced a whole lot more since I was a teenager, but I was just going back for that kind of original burst of love and ideas and things that I had back then. The fantasy genre is back in a big way. Why is that? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know if it actually didn't go anywhere it's always seemed to me to be kind of hugely popular more more so right now because you get the game of thrones tv show and the, the martin books and they're like really huge but i mean it seems to me for the last 20 30 years that um you know fantasy has been pretty pretty big everywhere so at, as far as i'm concerned it, it's only really kind of gotten a big kind of mainstream boost out of the the martin books but, I mean, that's really no different than the kind of, like, Tolkien mainstream boosts that it gets periodically here and there. I think it's kind of always been a really strong kind of novel form genre thing. It hasn't really been very strong in, like, short fiction. Um, like, not... Like, in the pulps it kind of was, and then that sort of really faded out until it sort of hit its stride with novels, I think. And, you know, that sort of rise up through the 80s and 90s and everything like that of those novels have made a really strong kind of fantasy kind of genre, I think. What challenges did you face putting together your short story collection, Dead Americans? Um, well, I mean, you know, a collection sort of gets made over, over a decade, basically, or even more. In my case, it was like, you know, roughly a decade because I just wrote the stories as I went along and stuff like that. So... When you're writing like a short fiction collection like Dead Americans, you're not really focused on the fact that you're going to have a book at the end. You're just kind of writing them for individual markets and individual little ideas and you're selling them in small piece. Whereas something like The Godless, 
because you write a novel, you know that you're writing it to sell it as like a, a unified kind of whole, whereas short stories are bits that you sell here and there. So when it came to putting together Dead Americans, what, we actually, what I actually did is I just went through and cherry-picked out of all the work I'd sort of published and sort of brought the things together that I thought would like fit kind of nicely in as like a single kind of book. How did our American cousins respond to the title of your short story collection? <laughs> um, I, I don't know, man. I, I think you could pretty much call a short story collection anything you wanted, to be quite honest. I mean, most of them fly under the radar of of everybody, doesn't it? I mean, um, so I, I don't think they really blinked at it too much. Oddly enough, my girlfriend <laughs> was in New Zealand um, a couple of months back, and it was like around the time of the release of, of uh, Dead Americans, and she went into a bookstore, and she said to the woman at the counter, do you have this book called Dead Americans? And a woman turned to her and looked really horrified and said, oh, my God, no, we would never carry a book like that. So, <laughs> so you know, um, and I think some people haven't really liked the title, but I think it's the best title I've ever come up with, frankly. So, you know, and but I don't know if everybody sees the humour in it. So, What would your dream project be? You know, I, I, I kind of like what I'm doing right now, man. Like, um, it's weird. I never thought that I would write a big kind of fantasy series. When I was a kid, it's like 16, 15, 14, like, and you're writing your own kind of like books and stuff. Um, I wrote like a fantasy book and thought I was going to write this really amazingly big fantasy book and it would sell and I'd make tons of money and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And, <laughs> And uh, then I sort of like drifted away from fantasy and I wrote other things and stuff like that. And I don't know, I, I find it really kind of strange and, and yet kind of circular that here I am back and now I've got this fantasy book and I'm like, yeah, well, here we go. <laughs> um, so that, that's kind of what it is. I mean, I've got some other projects I'd like to do like down the track and stuff like that, a couple of dead American kind of novels. I have this idea for like a really big kind of like um, democracy fantasy novel actually um, to sort of like hijack that idea that so many fantasy novels are about kind of like, um, you know, the return to kind of like really archaic kind of like political structures and kind of like uh, just sort of like hijack that and, and put it into like a democracy-based kind of thing and see the rise of democracy through fantasy books and stuff like that. That'd be kind of cool, so... If you were stuck on a desert island with only one book for company, what would it be? Uh, I'd like, I'd like, I'd like a big book. Um, you know, uh, a big, but a, a single book. You know, I don't want to get stuck in like the Sanderson kind of big book series because I can only take one book with me, and that would be frustrating. You know, um, so maybe I'd go with like one of them big classic things, like you know, uh, Don Quixote. I've never read that, so. I could be stuck on the island. Don Quixote is a pretty big book, and I could go through that. What author-style advice would you give your younger self? Read more. Read differently. Like, I, I think the best thing that you can do when you're starting out as a writer is to read, like, really kind of, like, diversely and read very differently. As much as I loved all the fancy books that I read as a kid and stuff like that, for a writer perspective, you really should be reading quite diversely and quite... Um, you know, not just kind of genre-wise, but people-wise, country-wise, cultural-wise, you know, all that kind of stuff. I'd also tell my younger self to learn another language so I could read in different languages. Ben Peake, thank you very much for coming on The Bookworm. <laughs> no problems, man. Thanks for having me here. This is Fab Radio International.
So that was um, Ed's, Ed's interview with um, the lovely um, Ben Peak. Um, um, sorry, I am a bit brainless. Um, you're listening to The Bookworm on Fab Radio International. I'm Nympha Hayes. Thanks for listening. And uh, we are on Fab Radio International, as I said. You can catch us on Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr, uh, on iTunes through the wonderful Starburst podcast, um, and on Mixcloud. So it could be Sunday, it could be any day, but we'll still be The Bookworm. Um, Ed's review today was um, a high fantasy um, grudge bearer. Um, I'm actually sort of moving away from high fantasy um, today. There's no theme whatsoever that we can find. A sort of world building. Sort of. Uh, yes, actually, that's not a bad, bad thing. Sort of world building. I'm reviewing Marked, which is the first book in the House of Night series, both PC and Kristen cast. Um and what's it about? What is it about? What it's, is it it's about? It's got a very pretty lady on the cover. It's a f- the covers are all pretty. Now, there's about a gazillion of these books out. Um, right. This is the first one, as I said, marked. Um, and it's sort of the introduction to this massive world that they've built. So the story follows um, Zoe, who's 16 years old, um, has a um, lovely boyfriend and friends, goes to school, has a... F- family not exactly the perfect family and then one day a vampire tracker points at her and marks her and what does that mean it means zoe is actually to become a vampire so she's sent to the local um vampire school um they're called house of night um so the tulsa house of night to be precise because they live in tulsa Yay. And um, and so Zoe's life obviously changes. Um, the the good thing is, you know, should she manage to to um, reach the full vampire state, she'll she'll actually be very powerful and live pretty much forever, or at least for a very long time. Bad thing is, not all the kids that are chosen actually make it through. So it's like. You need like a certain number of GCSEs to be a vampire. <laughs> no, it's it's actually more to do with physiology than than your actual studies. So you start the school and get prepared in sort of Vampire One Hundred and One. Um, here's our history and here's who we are and what we've achieved and how we've in- integrated with humanity. Um, however, there can be a your body can reject the change, which means you die in a very gruesome and bloody way. Ooh, yeah, it's basically your eyes and your nose and your ears start to bleed out and your heart stops and you die very painfully. So it's pretty much a death sentence for a percentage of... Absolutely, it, that, that's exactly what it is. Um, so Zoe comes in and um, she's, she's, as I said, she's come from a difficult sort of situation at home with a, with a stepfather that's very controlling and a, a mother that can't kind of fight... Um, to to connect with the children anymore. Um, However, she has a very positive influence in her life, which is her grandmother, who has, um, I love this concept, she has a lavender farm just outside Tulsa, and she's of um, Native American descent, so there is that element in Zoe as well. Um, and, And... that's dealt with really beautifully. I like. I really like all the mythology that's introduced from the Native American point of view, uh, mixed in with this almost pagan um, 
feel um, that the vampire religion has. Uh, the vampires basically follow Nyx, the goddess of the night, and her consort um, Erebus, um, who is sort of like a, a god of, of, of the sun almost. So, you know, you've got this marriage of sun and, and moon. Um, and Nyx sometimes grants special gifts to her vampires of choice. Normally um, at, at fledgling levels, so those that haven't reached full vampire maturity. Um, and during during the, the story that's weaved in the gazillion books that are out, um, there is a progression of, of these powers in Zoe. Um, obviously, I don't want to give too much away, uh, which is why I want to concentrate on the first book and the world uh, especially um, now world is absolutely gorgeous like the way they've built it up it's so original and the whole take on what vampires are and how how they integrate as i said with with human beings and and this sort of separate but not so much society um obviously you know the first book is based and most of the books are based within the school grounds so you get you know you get all your stereotypical there's there's the bitchy girl um that one you know the, the head cheerleader although there aren't any uh, vampiric cheerleaders here oh, man. i know right um so in, in this case it's high priestess because they have these circles you know see the pagan theme going through and um, they call on the elements and most of the powers of these people are tied to a certain element and things like that um and, it, and it's all very very um very well described in it so the world you actually believe okay this could be real and it's modern you know it's set in modern time um and i have to say i read the first book and i got hooked on it i thought that's different i enjoy that unfortunately as the as it progresses although the world is still fantastic it seems like the characters have sort of lost their shine. Um, they seem to be sort of stuck a certain way and not really maturing or progressing. No character progression through no, the series. It feels like they haven't really grown up. I mean, as you can imagine, these these kids and Zoe especially go through hell. You know, there's loads of uh, right like ups and downs and twists and turns to things that happen to them from ancient evil gods rising to um you know the, the big evil um of of the series who is actually a vampire high priestess i'm not gonna say any names because i don't want to give any spoilers um so so the, there's there's loads of things there's deaths of of beloved characters there's there's um you know the the the, the knowledge that you know none of these kids might make it till the end of the book because as as you said before a high percentage of them just know it you know that they're, they're doomed uh, from the beginning so is there an element of sort of a logan's run thing here where it's like okay you've been chosen and you have these super magic powers and all these abilities but you know it's going to kill you unless you're very lucky is that not really because as i said it's it's only certain fledglings only certain students that are picked that get these powers most of them get you know when they 
turn into a full vampire they will get you know uh, immortality and uh, well I say again I say immortality but they can't be killed longevity so longevity uh, and and they get to be part you know of this beautiful world uh, most vampires in in this sort of world um are artists and and uh, sort of really um high key i mean th- there's some lovely uh, little um ideas there of of um famous people in our real world that actually in this world are vampires one of them is lord byron for example that makes sense uh, so th- th- there is all that in it and there is you know the promise that you'll have a supportive community that will help you achieve whatever you want to achieve so it, it's literally yes if you pass this you're going to get your life is going to be amazing however there is a high chance that you, you won't survive till then so just make the most of it now and all it is it's they are in a school and they're studying and things happen and there's this group of kids that get involved with Zoe being sort of like at the centre of it um, and everything starts spinning really really fast and you kind of feel like these kids have got to sort of grasp um, and, and trying to stop the world from crumbling down however as I said before I feel that the story's been drawn so much over so many books that the characters have kind of lost it. Uh, in the first couple of books, you were very much like, okay, I can see how this is going and it's really great and I love the world and I love, I, I, you know, you could connect to some of those characters and then that gets lost and it's such a pity. And I'm still reading them because I want to see how, how they end it. But I, is it that I, the uh, is it that the author is spinning it along because they they've got a good thing going? Is that it, a cynical? It response? could be that. Uh, it could also be that apparently they have a set number of books that they want to release for reasons, um, and that was planned from the beginning. But it just feels like that that plan should have been changed halfway through to okay, let's wrap this up. Too little, but too big a bigger loaf. A bit too much going on yeah it also kind of spinned um i mean the 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 this is probably the only young adult book i've seen that has to have in the later books a parental guidance sticker on it because there's a lot of swearing there's sex and violence and things so it's become from a young adult book to an adult writing a young adult book i think it's lost Hmm. it a bit in terms of um, I could see the voice before, but I think that voice has been lost, and now I'm just seeing the adult trying to write as a as a young person. That's just not quite getting it. Shall we talk about that in the next section? The idea that there is nothing wrong with reading the first half of a trilogy and then abandoning it. <laughs> Why not? So, who's it by and what's it on? It's marked. It's the first book in the House of Night series by PC and Kristen Cast, and it's um, Atom Books stop and for the UK. Um, it's a gorgeous book, and just find out more about it. Embrace the alternative. So, um, so this is the part of the show where we talk about the rest of the show. We've kind of been talking about world building, and we've also been talking about giving up on books and giving up on book series. 
Uh, now, I, I I was deeply unimpressed with Grudge Forever, but you're saying that we've marked the first one's grit and then the rest of them are a bit... It, it, it kind of goes downhill. I mean, the, the first couple ones, two, maybe three, um, you can see the story and there's a lot of it and the characters are sort of growing and, and you kind of relate to it. And then it just starts rolling downhill very fast after that. The, the, there is a marketing thing when it comes to book series. And I think that very much it is a marketing thing where you're you're made to feel guilty about not finishing the entire series. <laughs> and that's silly. If you should you should this is the whole this goes back to the George R. R. Martin thing, where people expect George R. R. Martin to finish the series and they're like, Oh, he's a bad workman or you should be and then other people are like, Well no, actually, George R. R. Martin is not your servant. Um, you know, he has produced these things and you should enjoy them enjoy the art that's been given to you. Um the truth is, a lot of people have read the first book in the Game of Thrones series and have not read the rest. <laughs> they've moved directly to the TV series. And they've moved directly to the TV series, so they've gone, that was fun, and then stopped because, you know, the series isn't finished, they've got other stuff to read. I haven't started it. I've, I've seen, I mean, I know about it and I've talked about it. My other half, my husband's read them up up to, I think, the fourth one. But my um, point is, is that you, you don't, if the first book, because... The thing that got it, the TV show was the first book. Mm. A lot of the people involved had read only the first book. There's this whole whole expectation we have. Again, we've marked. There's no, nothing wrong with reading the first one. And when no. you read the first one, the rest of it's a bit rubbish. I mean, that applies with, with film and TV as well. I'm one of those people that says you should watch the Battlestar Galactica miniseries and then meh about the rest of the series. Uh, and some people are like, oh, no, you, you don't get it. You should enjoy No, you can enjoy a thing for what it is. And with novel series, there's, there is, there's nothing that annoys me more than reading half a book. Hmm. Um, the Priest of Mars by um, Graham McNeil. Now, I absolutely adore Graham McNeil's books, but his his Priest of Mars series, um, the, the three of them, are really, uh, really, really one and a half books. There's there's padding in there, and you sit there and you go, he's been asked to write a trilogy, so he's written it as a trilogy, but really he could have do it, done it as a duology, and it would have been just as good. Yeah. Um, and there's plenty of books like that and I, I kind of, I just I know I live in the real world and I know there's a world where marketing says that these books have to be marketed in, you know, they come in they come in phrase, mm. that's a rule or but, you know in 15s or in 15s, <laughs> and they shouldn't have to and this is the whole thing no. I, I should be able to, Neil, Neil Gaiman should not be an outlier, Neil Gaiman is one of the most successful writers in the world, and like, yet he seems to be this strange outlier where he's just done any projects that he's he's wanted and they've sold and it's the reason the reason is is because people are buying people who are buying fortunately the milk have read American Gods and they're buying it because it's Neil Gaiman they're buying it because they know what to expect they have a, a guarantee of quality mm. and it doesn't need to be the third book in the series I think it puts you off as well well I mean with the House of Night I'm still buying them I've just finished the latest one and I can see I can still see the threads of the plot that could have been tightened up in maybe five, six books instead of 13 um, and it would have worked beautifully and given you a, a very satisfying reading experience if you're a young adult or if you're a sort of an adult like me that enjoys young adult and reading about you know vampires and, and all sorts of things um, and there's nothing wrong with that however 
reading it as a 12, 13, 14, 15 box or however many they're going to produce on this series, I just think you're watering up the plot so much it's losing flavour. But it's the same with Lower K. Hamilton. There's loads of Lower K. All the Lower K. Hamilton books are standalone, pretty mm, much. Pretty much, yeah. And you can just skip a load of them. But the the Obsidian Butterfly, I think, is, is the one that it just really just made me go, because <laughs> mm. it's just, you know, it, it's gore porn. And I was like, I don't like gore porn. I don't want to read more gore porn. I was going to read gore porn. On. I'll move on. And, you know, but there's other decent books in that series for a given value of decent books. I, I just bought yesterday Shiver of Life, which is from the Mary Gentry series, which I, I adore. And, you know, for what it is. Um, and I've got the first five books in the Anita Blake series. There's, what, about 20 now? The Iron, um, the Iron Fear series, Judy Cagwell. Yeah. There's an example of a series that you can read the first one, you can read the last one, and you can throw the rest away. <laughs> uh, I've read. The, funny you should say that. I've read the first one, and and I really enjoyed it. But I, I enjoyed it for what it was, and I don't have the urge to go and read the other ones. Horse um, Heresy, which is a multiple port, part series. Um, there's a, there, there's a series where you can really, 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 and I know this is going to make people growl at me, but Horse Heresy, pick the authors that you like. Read theirs. If you like Aaron Dembski Bowden, and if you don't, why not? But if you like Aaron Dembski Bowden, read Aaron Dembski Bowden's. Read Dan Abnett's, read Graham McNeil's. If you're a Nick Kime fan, read Nick Kime's stuff. But don't try and read them in order because there's 30 of them. I did wonder when we were going to get to Hollis Hennessy. <laughs> Do you know who's done it right? Because you know she's my favourite, anyways. Kelly Armstrong, Women of the Other World. There's 13 books you can pick any of them as a standalone enjoy it for what it is and walk away quite satisfied. I see you Kelly Armstrong and I raise you with Terry Pratchett. Oh whatever I, I have to confess I am at this point I'm going to guess about at least ten books behind in the Discworld series and I like them when I get around to read them but I've just I don't know what's happening um, of all the books we have tumbling into into Bookworm Towers we don't seem to get the Discworld stuff um because it's massively commercial successful. Yeah, so yes, that we need to review it. But I enjoy it, but it's just... I sort of need something different for a bit. And I'll come back to it eventually. But Kelly Armstrong and Terry Pratchett are both good examples, again, and with Neil Gaiman, are both good examples yeah. of, of creators who sat down and gone... They, none of them have really gone out to create a franchise. They've just... They've done solid, getting back to our topic, world-building. They've done yeah. strong world-building. And they've gone, well, we can play. And that means that you don't have to have... You don't have to sit through 40 novels just to get to the end. No, because, you know, as you said, you, you've got a, a magnificent world. You can go wherever you want in that world. You can explore any old character you like and still give a strong plot and a strong story that you can sit down and go, oh, my God, I don't want to put this down because it's so good. And then once you finish, you go, ah, I can walk away now. And then the next one comes out and... Yeah, I can go. Does does the blurb sound good? You know, is it a character that I want to know more about, or is it a new character that that's looking at a different angle within that world? I'm gonna pick it up, and if not, I'll go. Oh, I might wait for another one. See, I, I want to know what's in it for Wheel of Time fans, because the, the people who there's some people who are like very firmly into the Wheel of Time mm. and very into the world building and very into the, the thing, and as I understand it. You can pretty much see where it's going, you know, two and a half million words in. So, okay. um, you know, you, you kind of you know the I've direction. Never, I've never picked it up because it's daunting to me. It's, just it's looking at the 
when I whenever I go into like Waterstones or a bookstore and just look at that section and I go <laughs> I can't I, I can't start on the first one but because I, it's still ongoing and there's about a hundred thousand words in there. But I'm I'm wondering if Millions. the appeal is the the kind of familiarity. Oh, I'm sure if I'd had started it, you know, book two or three out, I would have caught up and and probably like most people be waiting for the next instalment but I haven't and looking at it now I'm like I don't know if I want to take that on but for 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 me Terry Pratchett and Kelly Armstrong are good examples of books that I consider to be a warm hug oh yeah I'll pick them up and because I'm so familiar with the author I'll be done in it and I'm not bragging I'm really not bragging I'm mm. done about now um and I'll read it again yeah and I'll I'll I'll, I'll be delighted um I was, after we did the Discworld, one of the Discworld specials, I just sat, I had an hour to kill, and I just sat and read Nightwatch. Um, absolutely lovely again. You know, it was, just, it was like going to visit an old friend. Yeah, I must admit, the only project I've ever read is Hogfather, and I adored it. Gorgeous book. Uh, absolutely wonderful. And um, Good Omens with Neil Gaiman. I haven't really tackled the Discworld, again, because it, it's it is just so much out. But it's not... I don't think Pratchett is my cup of tea. Two brilliant world-building authors. I would love to see what Cameron Hurley does with um, with a series where she dives into rather than tries to tell a coherent story all the way through. Shall we run away? Oh, let's, let's run, run away. away. Across the world, 24 hours a day. This is Fatboyian International. So, it's... Goodbye from me, Ed Fortune. And goodbye from me, Nympha Hayes. Uh, remember to catch us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Mixcloud, or iTunes. Like, subscribe, do all those things. We're also available on Owl and Raven if you use those systems. <laughs> uh, always, always Radio Bookworm. Raven's called Radio Bookworm. The Owl's called Radio Bookworm. They get mocked by their friends. The Bookworm is a truly outrageous production for Fab, Radio International and Starburst magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune and Nympha Hayes. Produced by A.L. Johnson. <laughs>